Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the life of Abraham with James Jordan, and here he's going to be looking at the themes again of Exodus and Arrival, specifically looking at Genesis chapters 12 and 13. We do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Specifically, note our upcoming course on Paul and Pauline Theology with Peter Lighthart in the month of March. A description of that course and a link to register can be found in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan, discussing the life of Abraham. Our Heavenly Father, as we look again at the life of Abraham, we ask that you would bless our considerations and help us as we consider the sin of Lot to learn from it and not to make it ourselves, but always to remain loyal to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and stay close to him. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today is Lecture 3, and the title is Exodus and Arrival 2. Last time we saw the Exodus pattern in the Bible, how God's people will be pulled into a furnace of oppression and then delivered out and put into the promised land. And today we'll see that pattern in its first really developed form. And I've given you in your handout a map that we'll call attention to as we look at Abraham this week and next week. And then I've also given you an outline of Genesis 12:6 through 13:18, which shows the chiastic structure. Remember, a chiastic structure is like A, B, A, or A, B, C, B, A, and you can see this one is fairly involved. It takes a while, I suppose, to get used to looking for these kinds of patterns in the Bible, but they're all over the place. We're found in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and here, just by looking at the way the passage is written, we see Abraham settled in the land at a sanctuary and ministering to the Canaanites and God promising the land and moving to another sanctuary and worshiping God and then moving into the Negev, descending down into Egypt, his wife attacked, God delivering her, and then the same kind of language is used progressively to pull us out from that. It's the way it's written. He comes up from Egypt, he goes back to the Negev, he goes back to Bethel and Ai, God appears to him and promises the land to him, and then he moves to Hebron, and identical Hebrew phrases are used to set up this parallelism, and that reveals something to us, you see. If we just read the passage and didn't notice the structure, we get the story and we see God delivering Abraham. But the fact that Abraham wrote this passage this way, and that it was finally structured this way by Moses, or whoever put it into final shape, shows a deliberate theological pattern as well, that we move straight to the Passover deliverance. That's at the heart, the transition from oppression to deliverance. So that's what we want to look at. And today we have three basic sections. The first, Abram's ministry in Canaan. The second, Abram in Egypt. And third, the departure of Lot. Look at your map. This map will be used this week and next week. It shows us sort of in outline form the land. You'll notice that I have the Dead Sea outlined in dots because the Dead Sea didn't exist. What existed at this time was called the Circle of the Jordan. 
And that's an obscure phrase. It's used for a round loaf of bread, circle. It's used for round coins, talents. And it's also used for certain geographical areas. I'm wondering, as I have no way of knowing this, that there might have been something of a delta. If you look at the map, the Jordan River seems to point on down to the Gulf of Aqaba and on into the Red Sea. And yet, it doesn't go there. It stops. It's blocked off by the Dead Sea, and the water piles up and became saltier and saltier, in addition to the salt that God deposited there at the time of the destruction of Sodom. So perhaps this expression, a circle of the Jordan, means the Jordan Delta. It certainly is well watered throughout, which indicates a lot of different streams and rivulets. Some scholars have said maybe there were a big canal system, an irrigation system there. We can't know for sure. But what we'll see this week is Abram move down to Shechem and establish a sanctuary and worship there. And then he moves between Bethel and Ai and establishes a sanctuary and worship there. And then he moves to Hebron and establishes a sanctuary and worship there. So the first thing he does is establishes worship. Now next time, we'll see Chedor Laomer come in and fight battles over the entire land. All these other places here, they fought down at En Mishpat, and he fought all the way up at Dan, and he fought at all these different places, showing Chedorle Over's dominion over the entire land, the geography, the places mentioned are such as to show that he was conquering the entire country. And then we see Abraham and his little troop conquer Chedorle Omer and make his way over the entire country, showing dominion. We have the establishment of worship, then we have, coming out from that, the establishment of dominion, and the maps will help us with that. So hold on to your map for next time as well. Well, let's look today, first of all, at Abram's ministry in Canaan. Starting in verse 6, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak or terebinth of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Notice these geographical notations. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. First thing we notice in verse 6 is Abram passed through the land. This is kind of a proto-conquest. When Abram goes through the land, it's not because he's a nomad. It's because it's now juridically his land, even though he hasn't taken possession of it. And he goes and he marks it out by going here, putting an altar, going there, putting an altar. He marks it out. And these places that he goes to are all the same places that Jacob goes to later on. Jacob spends time at Shechem. Remember the Shechemites? One of the sons of Shechem ravished Dinah, and then they were circumcised, and then they were destroyed. And he spends time at Bethel, Jacob does, marking out the land. And then when the promised land is given to God's people, Shechem and Bethel are where the tabernacle stays. You read about the tabernacle was at Bethel for a while. Then you read about it was at Shechem for a while. The centers of the land, the key points... Abram marks these out, and it's kind of a conquest there. It's an establishment of worship. All these places are later sites, important later sites, where the tabernacle was pitched or judgment was exercised. 
You may remember that David was crowned king in Hebron first and then moved to Jerusalem. So here we have Shechem and Bethel, and later on we'll see Abraham settling down in Hebron for a long time and sort of a preliminary to David's kingship in Hebron for many years before he finally moved his kingdom to Jerusalem. As we said before, these things that happened to Abraham are pictures of what would happen to Israel later, and they were supposed to learn from it. Learn from it that the first thing you do when you go into the land is establish worship. Then you start to take dominion. Second thing we notice here are trees. It says that the site of Shechem, and he settled at the oak or terebinth of Moran. And then we will see other references to trees, important trees. At the end of the passage in verse 18 of chapter 13, Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks or terebinths of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now over and over again, you may remember the patriarchs are seen pitching their tents under these giant oak trees, and that's what they were. I'm not sure exactly what kind of trees they were, but we know that they were huge trees. Now what's the effect of that? Why does the Bible bother to call attention to it? See, it would have been just as easy for the authors, God and human authors, to say, Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, period. Why call attention to this oak tree here, and why keep calling attention to it? God doesn't waste his breath, so we have to think about it. Well, we have to think visually, and that's not our custom, but let's try it anyway. A tree, this kind of tree as opposed to an evergreen tree, has a straight, or it may branch out, but basically a straight trunk and then a large leafy crown up at the top, right? And you can pitch your tent under it. You can't pitch your tent under a cedar tree very well because branches come out all the way down, but you can under this. Now, if you think visually, such trees are a picture of a ladder to heaven stretching up from the ground up to the glory cloud of God. And to pitch your tent under the shade of that tree is symbolically to be under the shade of God. And this comes up over and over again in the Bible. The righteous man is pictured as sitting under the shade of a particular tree. Deborah is pictured as exercising judgment at the palm tree of Deborah. Palm trees go way up high and then sprig out at the top. So you have a glory crown at the top and then this ladder stretching from earth to heaven. Now there are a lot of different kinds of ladders that go from earth to heaven in the Bible. Pyramid is one, the false pyramid, and then the true pyramid or tower of Babel that appears to Jacob. Remember Jacob has a dream? He sees a ladder going to heaven. That's the counterpart to the Tower of Babel. That's a true Tower of Babel. And he says, this is nothing other than the gate of heaven. Well, Babel means gate of heaven. So this is the true Babylon. And remember where Jacob had that dream? Bethel. So that was a place where there was a ladder to heaven. And these trees with their large trunks and then the leafy crown overhead creating a canopy for man to dwell under, that's all a picture. It's a picture of something. Very common in the ancient world and very common in the Bible. A picture of God's shade. And if you remember from the book of Isaiah, it talks about the Lord being a shade to his people. Sometimes the shade of a mighty rock. Other times other kinds of shade. So I think that that's why attention's called to it. These trees became sites of judgment and of worship. 
Now, beyond that, we also see altars. These altars are put up here, there, and everywhere. What is an altar? Altars set up worship in key places. And this is the first, and we've already seen a couple of others. There's one at Bethel. There's going to be one in Hebron. Chapter 14, we see battles at key places. Dominion comes out from establishment of worship and piety. An altar is a mound of stone or dirt. It's a miniature pillar or pyramid. It's a ladder to heaven. I don't know if you've seen what altars look like in the ancient world, but they would pile up rocks up to about chest high with four horns on it, and that's where fire would be set inside there and sacrifices offered. Now, they never ate the sacrifices at this stage in history. The only thing they had was a whole bunch of sacrifices. They never had any sacraments. They never got to eat with God and come into his house. The house wasn't built yet. But they did get to offer sacrifices to substitute for their sin. And that's what Abram did. And he would build an altar out of uncut stones and dirt so that no human tool was on it and it was all God's material and not man's works. And then bring a lamb and offer it there. And again, this idea of a pillar coming up was another picture to them of a ladder between earth and heaven, a place where heaven and earth were joined. It comes up from the earth, and God comes down, and the sacrifice mediates in between. Remember what Jacob's dream was like. See, we're going to have to think visually about this and get these visual connections that are in the Bible. Jacob says, I looked and I saw a ladder reaching up to heaven and angels ascending and descending on this ladder, on this pyramid. Now, what did Jesus say in John 1.51? He said, you will see heaven open, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So the ladder to heaven actually is Jesus Christ, the mediator. He stands between heaven and earth. He's the ladder from heaven to earth. Angels ascending and descending on the ladder, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He becomes the ladder between heaven and earth. So you begin to see how an altar functions the same way. And we could spend oodles of time showing comparisons in the Bible to help establish this. But an altar raises up from the ground and presents the sacrifice between heaven and earth. Mountaintops do the same thing. Sacrifices are always made on mountaintops in the Bible. See how it connects. It's a little mountain, a little ladder. And it puts the sacrifice right there between heaven and earth. Now, altars in the Old Testament, in addition to being pillars to heaven, have two other functions. They're memorials. They're memorials. They indicate a place where God has put his name. God appears to somebody somewhere. They build an altar as a memorial. Now, this is not true in the New Testament anymore. But in the Old Testament, because of the sin of man, the ground was cursed, right? So you always had to wear shoes so that you didn't get any of that cursed dirt on your feet. And the only time you ever had uncursed ground or clean ground was where God appeared to somebody and cleaned it. So if God had appeared in a particular place and put his name there and had cleansed the space around it, then you could build an altar there and you could worship God there. And you could take your sandals off there. As God said to Moses, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. This is where I am. 
And so the idea of memorial is there is a permanency about these places that God establishes through Abraham as places of worship. Now, in the New Testament, any place will do. You don't have to have a special place where God has miraculously appeared. Of course, the tendency of the church is to slide back into thinking that way so that if the Virgin Mary appeared to somebody at Guadalupe, then we put a church there, and that becomes a special place. But that's false. See, that's thinking in Old Testament and pagan categories instead of New Testament ones. Now the entire world is clean, and the altars can be put up anywhere. Anywhere we want to build a church, anywhere we want to get together and worship God, the ground is the altar, and we're the sacrifices, and we can worship anywhere. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't so. So the altars were memorials. And as years go by, you could go by and see it there and say, yes, God appeared to someone there, and that reminds us of it. And also, in addition to being memorials, altars were places of worship, places where God can be worshipped. So these altars are important. You know, we're not told this for nothing. Abram establishes worship in these places, establishes a link between heaven and earth, and since he's the priest, he conducts evangelism here. We can look at the passage in a bit more detail now. For instance, in verse 6, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak or terebinth of Moray. What does Moray mean? Well, the oak of Moray means the oak of proclamation. Moray means appearance and proclamation. God appeared to him there, but Abram also conducted his evangelistic proclamatory work there. Remember, he had converted many souls in Haran, and now he will convert more souls. And we'll see this. We'll see Abraham converting many Gentiles as the years go by. It's the Oak of Proclamation, place where he conducted worship. And while worship wouldn't have been quite the same as ours today, there's no reason to think that it was all that much different either. There would have been a gathering of people. They would have prayed. They would have offered a sacrifice as a substitute for their sins. They would have been led in prayers by Abram. He would have explained the word of God to them, told them the stories and explained what they meant. Not that much different. A place of proclamation. Now we're told now the Canaanite was then in the land and the Lord appeared to Abram. Actually, it would be better if verse 7 began in the middle of verse 6. Now the Canaanite was then in the land and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. It won't remain with the Canaanites forever to your seed. Now, this is the first mention of the seed and such to Abram in a promise. And it raises the question, who is the seed? Who is going to inherit this land? And that becomes a problem that there are many stages to in the life of Abraham. Right now, Lot is the one who's going to inherit. Lot's the nephew. And Lot's going to be taken care of here. And then we have Eleazar of Damascus. And he's going to be bumped out by Ishmael. And then Ishmael is going to be bumped out by Isaac. There are questions right along the way. Who is the seed going to be? And it's raised right here at the outset so we become alert to it. And we know that right now the one who will inherit everything from Abram is Lot. So I guess Lot's it until we find out that he's not. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is really interesting in terms of the way it's written. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. What is all this information? All it needs to say is he proceeded there to the area between Bethel and Ai and built an altar to the Lord. 
Instead, we're given all this additional information. It was a mountain. Well, mountains, again, are places of worship. Mountains are where men meet with God. The Garden of Eden was up on a mountain. Moses will go up to a mountain to talk to God. Jesus will give a sermon on the mount. There's an offering on Mount Carmel. Mountain, mountain, mountain. That's where God meets man, just like the top of an altar. So a picture of mountaintop worship here, mountaintop experience. Of course, in paganism, this becomes Mount Olympus. There are all these other false mountains, but the truth is in the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean you can't talk to God anywhere else. There's an incident in the Old Testament where the pagans go out and fight Israel, and Israel wins, and the leader of the Syrian army says, well, the Lord, this God of theirs, is a God of the mountains, because they knew about all these mountains. But our gods are gods of the plains, and if we fight them on the plains, then we'll defeat them. So the Lord says, well, I'll show them that I am God everywhere. And so Israel defeats them on the plains as well. But nonetheless, there's a particular symbolic usefulness to worshiping on mountains, and you always see them doing it, going up to meet God between heaven and earth. And there's also this business about east and west. It just always comes up in the book of Genesis. And it starts in the Garden of Eden. They were kicked out the east gate, which is the back door of the garden. And they brought their sacrifices to the east gate. They came from west to east and brought their sacrifices to the door. And then when Cain was driven out, it says Cain went even further east out into the land of wanderings. And it says in connection with the Tower of Babel that they journeyed eastward, away from God. And the Bible, ordinarily, especially in Genesis, when people move east, they're moving away from the gate of the tabernacle. They're moving away from the gate of heaven. They're moving away from where they can worship God. They have to come in a westward direction to bring their sacrifices. Now look at how this is written here, and tell me if you can derive something from it. It says that Bethel was on the west, and Ai was on the east. So if you're in between and you want to worship God, which way do you face? In the Old Testament, back when this was supposed to be done the right way, the symbolism. Now, you don't face Ai, that's on the east. You're going to have to come back toward the west. You don't want to move east and face east, that's bad. When you worship, you want to come back and make a westward direction. No, you went out through the east. You go out to the east. Adam and Eve were kicked out on the east. Cain went farther east. If you want to worship God, you've got to come back in a westward direction. So, you're going to worship facing Bethel and facing away from Ai. What does Bethel mean? House of God. That's in your notes for you to write down. House of God. Now, when the land was conquered by Joshua, what was the second city that was totally destroyed? Ai. Look at your map. And look at how in the providence of God all this is set out. When they crossed the Jordan River, where were they headed to? They were headed westward to Bethel, the house of God. And they destroyed the things that were out to the east of it. They destroyed Jericho, then they destroyed Ai. Oh, it's not something that you would necessarily burn for, but there is some reason why all this information is given us here in the text. Bethel is the house of God, 
That's the direction that Abram would have faced, and that's where the offerings would have been made. Ai is on the west. It's never a significant city except in the destruction of it. Now let's drop back and look at the fact that to this point we have two altars and two worship centers. And that gives us one more thing about altars. Altars are witnesses. They're memorials and they're witnesses. And these two altars are witnesses to God's promise that Abram had been given the land. They're set up. They're kind of like a little challenge to everybody round about. Two witnesses to God's promise that Abram had been given the land. And in all of these symbolic ways, we see Abram taking dominion over the land and establishing the way in which the land is going to be divided up and conquered later on. Two witnesses. The Bible says at the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything is established. Here we have two, and then much later on, we find a third witness set up at Hebron at the end of chapter 13. So two and then three. That pattern is in the Bible. Two and then three. Witness altars that are permanent signs that God is going to give the land to Abram. Well, in verse 9 it says, Abram continued to walk through his land, journeying toward the Negev. We can summarize Abram's ministry by saying he established worship and he conducted evangelism. He taught people the principles of worshiping at the house of God, Bethel. You know, it is actually on the map I've got the word Luz next to Bethel because it wasn't called Bethel then. Actually, this town was not called Bethel until Jacob came along. And Jacob spent the night outside of Bethel, and God appeared to him, and then he stood up. And the city was actually named Luz. And he says, from now on, I'm going to call you Bethel. And when we conquer the land, we're going to change the name to Bethel. And that's all recorded in Joshua. But when Abraham lived there, it wasn't called Bethel at all. It was just called Luz. Somebody's gone through and added this into the text, you see, so that we understand that Abram established this place as the house of God. Well, now we come to Abraham in Egypt. Second thing we need to look at today. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See, now I know that you're a beautiful woman. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Sounds kind of selfish and bad, doesn't it? And it came about when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. She's about 70 years old, but she is still very beautiful. After all, they lived much longer back then. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, this is an attack. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake, and he gave him one sheep, two oxen, three donkeys, four male slaves, five female slaves, six female donkeys, seven camels. Always count things up like this. Sevenfold blessing. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife didn't judge Abram for his deception, judged Pharaoh. Then Abram called Pharaoh and said, This is all your fault. What is this you've done to me? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. It's your fault. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Now we're so used to the fact that 
You don't go down to Egypt. You don't go down to Egypt. You don't go down to Egypt. That's said dozens of times later on in the Bible. In fact, when the famine was on before and Jacob decided to move to Egypt or thought about it, he asked God if he should, and God said, yes, go ahead. We're so used to that that we tend to read it back into here. Abram shouldn't have gone down into Egypt. But actually, there's no problem with Abram going to Egypt at this point. This is the experience that sets up all the rest. Abram was going down there because Egypt had a hegemony over the land of Palestine, or the southern part of it at this time. It says here there was a famine in the land. We remember how that's going to set up the later big exodus. Jacob and his people will be driven down there by famine. A famine in the land, God's land, the land of Canaan, was already under judgment. And Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. God controls the land. This is his land. And when the land does something, that means God is doing something. God brought this famine to pass. God made the land unfruitful. And God was the one who drove Abram down to Egypt in order to teach him and to train him. Who drove Abram to Egypt? God did. And how do we know? Because God controls the land in a special way. Special way. The famine was severe. Everything indicates that Abram had no choice but to go somewhere for food. After all, he had to stay alive because God had told him he was going to have seed. And it was Abram's responsibility to keep himself alive. Now we look at the business about wife and sister. Everything in the passage emphasizes that the bride is beautiful. Why did Pharaoh want Sarai? Because she was beautiful. The pagans want to steal the glory and beauty that the church is. And that's what this signifies. That Sarai, my princess, is desirable and beautiful. And that's what's emphasized throughout. Now later on, when Abimelech takes Sarah, it's because he wants to have a child by her. But that's not the emphasis here. Here, the emphasis is on the woman. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Here is the attack on the woman. Later it's the attack on the seed. Both sides of that prophecy we will see in the story of Abraham. Abraham, however, Abram, must live in order to fulfill God's will and to be able to protect Sarai. See, Abram's no good to his wife if he's dead. This sounds kind of selfish. It will kill me. Please say that you're my sister so it may go well with me and I may live. If you read it the wrong way, it sounds like, forget about you, babe. I want to live. But actually, the only way he can protect her is if he stays alive. Now, to understand what's said, there are a couple of things we need to remember. First of all, Sarai was, in truth, Abram's sister. She really was. That's made clear later on. But in the ancient world, the sister is closer than the wife. Eve was Adam's sister before she became his wife. And in the ancient world, when you went to take a wife, frequently you did all your negotiations with her brother. We see that in chapter 24 of Genesis, and we won't look there because we don't have time. But when Abram's servant went to negotiate for Rebekah, he did all the negotiating with Rebekah's brother. Now, her father was still alive, but he wasn't in the picture. What's going on there is adoption that the husband adopts, takes over the brother relationship, and then also takes on the wife relationship. 
Now, you've read Song of Solomon before, and you know that over and over again it says, My sister, my bride, my sister, my bride. So in Song of Solomon chapter 4, verses 9, 10, and 12, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, My sister, my bride. See, this is a theme in the Bible, that when we marry, our wife is to be our sister in the Lord, and also our wife. Now, in the ancient world, a brother was the main protector for a sister. If you met a girl and you defiled her, it wasn't her father you would have to answer to, but her brothers. Remember how Absalom avenged his sister. Remember how Simeon and Levi decided they were going to avenge Dinah. It's the brother who protects the sister. And if you want to marry a girl, you don't go and see her father, you go see her brother. Now, when Abram says, tell them that I'm your brother, what's he doing? He's saying, tell them that I'm your protector. If they want to marry you, they got to come see me. Now, the Egyptians had this same custom. We know from literature of the ancient world that they had the same thing. If you wanted to marry a girl, you negotiated with her brother. So this is all set up real fine. I mean, there is some deception involved in that Abram and Sarai didn't tell the whole truth. But the main thing to see here is that Abraham acted to protect Sarai by claiming to be her brother. Because you had to go through the brother to get to the girl. Now, there is some deception, and deception in the Bible is what the woman does to the serpent. It shows up over and over again, and the reason for it is eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You got a question here? The woman defeats the serpent tyrant by deceiving him. What is the moral and legal foundation for it in terms of 1 Timothy 2.14? Well, 1 Timothy 2.14 says that Adam was not deceived, but Eve was, and Eve being thoroughly deceived, ate of the apple, or whatever it was. The serpent deceived Eve, and under the principle of justice, the foundation of justice, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, we have deception for deception. And it's important to see that. It's the woman who deceives the serpent. It is Rahab, a woman, who deceives her Canaanite lords. It's Hebrew midwives, two women, who deceive Pharaoh and are blessed for it. It's Jael, who deceives Sisera and kills him and is blessed for it. It's almost always women who have this eye-for-eye eye deception of the serpent. So even though what they said was technically true, there is a deceptive side for it, and it's usually women who do it. And the principle is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and deception for deception. If Satan hadn't attacked in the first place, there'd be no need for this. So, Abram says to Sarai, look, you're beautiful. They're going to want you for your best protection and mine. Tell them that I'm your brother. Then when they come and talk to me, I'll say, well, I really can't let her go and talk and procrastinate until this famine's over and we can get out of here. So in verse 14, what came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw, judged. Remember in Genesis 1, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. It has to do with judgment. And they made a judgment. They saw that this woman was beautiful, very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh came to Abram and said, I would very much like to form an alliance with your house, and I wonder if it would be possible for me to marry your sister and take her as one of my wives. And Abram said, no, sorry, she's already spoken for, or let me think about it. That's not what happened, you see. 
Pharaoh took her into his harem. Now that's the attack on the bride. That's the sin here. Abraham's deception is not the sin. Abram's not the one that's judged. Pharaoh's judged. Pharaoh's the one who acts as a tyrant. The woman was taken to Pharaoh's house and put in the harem. Now, of course, everybody wants to know, does that mean that Pharaoh came in and had relations with Sarai? You know, is this all horrible here that's being spoken of? Probably not. Because, if you remember from the book of Esther, they took these girls and they perfumed them up for months before they were brought forth king. The fact that she was taken into the house does not imply, in Hebrew or the ancient world customs, that there was any sexual relations going on yet. But, of course, that would have happened eventually had God not intervened. We also begin to see the spoils, you see. Once this happens, just like later on, the Egyptians give all these spoils to Abram. Verse 16, the sevenfold things there. But, verse 17, we get to the Passover plagues. The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. This, of course, happens again later on in the Exodus because of Sarai, Abram's wife. What does it say in chapter 12, verse 3? I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. In spite of the fact that all these gifts were given to Abram, Pharaoh was cursing the church, and so he himself was cursed. And that's the theology here. Now, if most of the commentators were right, this is what it should say. He treated Abram well for his sake and gave him all these things, and then the Lord appeared to Abram in the night and said, Abraham, you've sinned. And you've lied. And I'm going to have to strike Pharaoh's house and it's all your fault. So you go and apologize to Pharaoh and ask his forgiveness and ask for Sarah back. That's not what it says, you see. It's Pharaoh who's judged, not Abram. So, what happens next? Well, typical, the wicked blame the righteous. It's all your fault. And this happens again and again, as we saw in the theme last week. Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? That would have made a big difference. I would have killed you and taken her. As it is, you know, this is all messed up. I've given you all these blessings. I've honored you and everything. Just because I broke the rules and took her without your permission, shouldn't be so mad. Now God's mad at me. It's your fault. Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? See, I couldn't help myself when I learned she was your sister. Once you said that, I had to take her. Now, here's your wife. Get out of here. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife, and all that belonged to him, all these spoils come out. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, back up to where we were, coming out of this descent down into the pit, and now we come back up, death and resurrection. We came up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. We haven't read about Lot till now. Now we see and Lot with him again. Lot is smart. He's joined himself to Abram's household. He's joined himself to the person that God is choosing to bless. And if he sticks with him, then Lot will be blessed. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Not some wandering nomad. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, and to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. That is, he reestablished public worship there, began to lead the people in worship. Now we have Lot. Lot is with him. And now God is going to separate Lot. 
As the nephew, Lot is the heir and the seed at this point. Lot also has flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. Mm. Whose land is it? God's land. Is God able to make the land so fruitful that it can sustain everybody? Yes. So if the land doesn't sustain them, what is really going on? God wants to separate Lot from Abraham. Why does God need to separate Lot from Abram? To make way for the seed. And what does God do to bring this about? He causes the land not to be strong enough. Well, we have a prophecy in Micah. Is it Micah or Amos? It says the plowman will overtake the sower. I mean, the land can become exceedingly prosperous and fruitful if God wants it to be. But God didn't want it to be. God wanted them to separate. Well, there's no problem with that. If they separate, that's fine. There's no moral implication there. Salvation and blessing for Lot as long as he abides with Abram. And if he departs and just separates because of the inability of the land to sustain them, that's no big problem. There's nothing bad about Lot here. But then we read in verse 7. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. This adds something to it. Now look what's written here. Look how this text is put together. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife. Why does it stick this business in here about the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelling in the land? They don't do anything. Perizzites aren't going to be doing anything here in this chapter. Neither do Canaanites. It's just stuck in here. Now the Holy Spirit has a reason for inserting this phrase in here. We already know the Canaanites are living in the land. It says that in chapter 12, verse 6. We're just stuck right in the middle of this story, a parenthetical remark about Canaanites and Perizzites living in the land. It's a literary clue. That's all I can do with it. Why? Because they're behaving like Canaanites. Canaanite influence is there with Lot. The Canaanites were rebellious. What happened to bring about the curse on Canaan? Ham, the youngest son, assaulted his father and tried to steal a prerogative that Noah had. And now we have more strife, strife between nephew and the uncle. After all, if Abram was in charge of this entire community, he could apportion out the land. There's no need for strife. If there's strife, it comes from the younger man at this point, who is just chafing under the decisions made by Abram, who's in charge of everything. He's the sheik. He's the prince. So Abram says, please let there be no strife between you and me. Mm, apparently they had had some words. Nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Strife, Canaanite-type behavior. And you know, the message here is if you start behaving like Canaanites and being rebellious, you wind up being judged like the Canaanites and losing everything. And that's what happens to Lot. Lot becomes a man who is in strife with Abraham. Just because things aren't going quite the way he wants it. And it starts with a little strife and it moves to where you're living near Sodom and then you move into Sodom and then you come out of Sodom and you wind up living in a cave in the ground. You're dead. You're living in a tomb. Of dust thou art and to dust thou shalt return. And by the end of the story... Lot is living in a tomb, and Abram moves from glory to glory. He becomes a prince among all the people. And Lot separates here 
And the contrast goes. Lot goes down. Abram goes up. And we have to trace that theme. Sad. So the Lord not causing the land to be blessed enough for both of them, that's not Lot's fault. But when there's strife, it is. And now the separation comes. What problem do we see with Lot? Striving. Now, Abram comes and is very gracious and says, Look, verse 8, Let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for they're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate me. If to the left, and I will go to the right. If to the right, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, or circle of the Jordan. This expression has to do with judgment. He lifted up his eyes and saw. God saw that it was good. Lot sees that this is good saw that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and created the Dead Sea. It was like the Garden of Eden, like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. Two things stick out here. First of all, Sodom and Gomorrah were kind of like the Garden of Eden, and that becomes a type in the Bible. When they're destroyed, it's like the Garden of Eden being destroyed. And in Ezekiel 47, when the waters flow out from the temple and restore it, it's like the Garden of Eden is restored. It becomes something that the Bible picks up over and over again as a type of man's expulsion and then restoration. We also see that the land of Egypt is like the Garden of Eden. And at the end of the book of Genesis, the people of God are put into Egypt, and not only into Egypt, but into the best part of Egypt, the land of Goshen. It says the best of the land, best part of the Garden of Eden. So that's something that has to be borne in mind right down to the end of Genesis because at the end of the book of Genesis, God's people have been restored symbolically to all this dominion. The Gentiles are converted. Israelites are the big advisors to the nations of the world. And they're living in the Garden of Eden. The book of Genesis has this real glorious ending to it. Now, Exodus starts out there, arose a Pharaoh who didn't acknowledge Joseph. We go right down to the pits. But at the end of Genesis, everything's great, the conquest of the world. Well, it's set up here. Egypt is like the Garden of the Lord, but that's parenthetical. Lot chose for himself the circle of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Unhappy choice of words. Do we have to go to the east? Like Cain, like Nimrod, yes, Lot journeys eastward. He didn't have to say that. I mean, we know the geography. We know what direction he went in. But the Holy Spirit calls our attention to it because he journeys eastward. You can look at the map, and you can see the direction in which he's moving from between Bethel and Ai. He's moving out toward Jericho, out toward the circle of the Jordan. Well, was there something wrong with Lot taking the good land? No. If a man comes and offers you a good present, it's an insult not to take it. And Lot would have been insulting Abram to take bad land. Lot honors Abram's offer by taking it seriously and by choosing good land. Now, is Lot in some big sin here? Not really. And yet, the text hints at something unhappy and unsavoring going on. He's moving eastward. And then we read in verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. So in the months and years to come, he moves down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, 
And then we're told another parenthesis, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Almost exactly the same language that we have in Genesis 6 before the flood. Almost exactly the same language that we have before the flood. So we know God is going to judge them, and here Lot is getting near. Now, here is four notes on Lot. First, contrast. Lot is a contrast to Abraham. Lot goes downhill until finally he's living in a symbolic form of death, living in a cave, returned to dust, while Abraham goes from glory to glory. So Lot is a contrast to Abraham. Second, Lot is removed from being the seed and the heir. Lot takes his inheritance and moves out of the picture, and God appears and promises a new seed will come and be the heir. So Lot is removed from being the seed and heir at this point, in a significant stage in the history. Third, Lot is an ambiguous, double-minded character. He hasn't committed some horrible sin, but he begins to make a series of bad choices that seem to arise from a desire to have too much too soon. Lot is ambiguous. And fourth, Lot is impatient. The New Testament says that Abraham was patient. He had patient faith. He waited for his city. Lot is impatient. He moves on into the city now, but he makes a mistake. picks the wrong city. There's a time to live in tents and a time to build cities. God dwelt in a tabernacle for 400 years before he built the temple. The only cities at this stage in history were pagan cities. And the message is you don't just rush into them seeking all the good things, watching all their movies, studying all their philosophy, saturating yourself in this pagan environment, enjoying the pagan lifestyle, frequenting pagan entertainments and everything else. doesn't mean you can never judiciously approach some of it, but it means you don't saturate yourself in it. And Lot begins this movement toward being in this environment, and it corrupts his home, and he winds up losing everything. All of these riches that he has now will be gone at the end of this story. He loses everything. Exactly what this says to us in Tyler and everywhere else, I don't know, but it offers a cautionary note. If this isn't our city, then we can't relax in it. If it's not our philosophy and our culture, then we can't relax in it. And it's dangerous to go move and saturate yourself in that environment. It's dangerous to pull away from the church and go become a full-time student and do nothing to saturate yourself in the world. These things are always dangerous, and the church has always warned against them. So that's what Lot is. Very quickly, let's finish out the chapter. The Lord reappeared to Abram after Lot had separated from him, and we have to have a new seed. And God says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world. And from all the land that you see, I will give it to you and your seed, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Man was made of dust, and now there are going to be new men. Recreation is the idea here. A new humanity made of the dust of the earth. And so many of them, that if one could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. And God again tells him, walk through the land its length and breadth. Make this kind of conquest of it by walking around in it. He's already done it. Do it again, and I will give it to you. So the passage ends. Abram moved his tent southward and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron and built an altar to the Lord and reestablished worship. It ends with the reestablishment of worship. 